Welcome to another episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. The league season has begun with a win. Joining me, Gareth Hanna, to look back at the bonus point 35 29 victory over Glasgow is our resident rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, are you well? I like, I like that you ask me how I am every week, Jonathan. And again, I am very well. Thank you for asking. Alongside us this week is Dixon Digital photographer extraordinaire, John Dixon. Hello, John. Hi, Gareth. Good to be back. Good to have you back, John. I still owe you £7 from our round of golf last week because you absolutely fleeced me uh, i didn't actually have enough cash on me to pay out so uh, don't worry it's uh, it's in the it's it's quite literally in the bank and uh, i haven't forgotten so i will pay you yeah bingo game for every time you mention uh, golf on this one. <laughs> so, uh, i think we got one minute in there before the first mention well, I thought I'd mention it before John did because I could see it in his eyes that he was absolutely <laughs> down to talk about it. So I thought I'd get in first, you know. So we've got the trip to Zebra to preview as well. Uh, it's on Saturday this weekend or it's a quarter past five kickoff. I've just gone out in a limb and assumed that there. But let's just say I think that's right. Ulster will look to continue their 100% start to the season. We'll get that stat in for as many weeks as we can. And of course, we've got loads of your listener questions to point us to the key topics that you want to hear discussed. The first of those comes as absolutely no surprise to any of us a certain teenage halfback nathan doke now mcdonald asks how calm was doke when he came on i think the sideline conversion summed up his performance which was what a try three conversions johnny tell us uh, tell us more about nathan doke i think that that question actually really hits the nail on the head because i thought that everybody was going to talk about the try but the thing that i thought was most impressive was the assuredness he displayed in his goal kicking because, you know, it doesn't take a mathematician to work out the three conversions in a six-point game. Very important. So for him to come on, not realise that he was going to be the goal kicker, Billy Burns to get injured, we think possibly while celebrating the kick through for his try. That's what uh, that's what Nathan said in the post-match anyway. <laughs> and to then realise that he was going to have to kick and nail the conversion. Absolutely massive mm-hmm. in the context of the game. I thought it was interesting as well to hear him mention how those support lines, tra- trail runs, I know uh, everyone loves when we mention those, but he'd uh, had that as a real point of emphasis in his game since the academy. You know, since his days in the academy, he'd been told that this was something that he had to work on, this was something that he had to add, and add to his game. And then in his uh, most high-profile uh, high-profile outing so far, and his longest outing so far, it yields a try. So pretty much, it's hard to see how things could have gone better for him, better for him on the night. And just like I said, you know, to get fifty minutes in the bank when previously he'd only played thirty minutes of senior rugby in a year when his rugby was so disrupted because of COVID, you know, he didn't get to finish his school season. He didn't get to play any club rugby week to week, like those young guys in their first year in the academy normally would. So um, obviously like there's been so much hype about him in general. Um, Basically since, you know, he was brought into the senior setup while still in school, but I suppose as the very early returns go, you have to say it's um, as encouraging as you could hope for it to be. John, this will be no surprise to you. I know that. I remember 
it must be two years ago now we were just chatting about the the really young players coming who had just sort of came in and were training with the squad for the first time and I remember you saying back then that the one player that all the senior guys were most impressed with was Nathan Duke and now here he is uh, not in the too distant future he's already um, becoming a, a big part of that and uh, yeah I'm sure you're you're not in the least bit surprised. No, I'm not. And I've watched him through his school's career as well. And he's always impressed uh, every time I've watched him. So um, it's great to see. And obviously he comes from uh, great stock, which also helps. And his dad has obviously been a big influence on him. And I can tell you another person, Ruan Pinar. You know, if you watch the way he actually passes the ball, he's very similar to the way Ruan passed the, the ball, you know. So it's there's a lot of things that he's picked up from that point of view. Um, so... You know, he's got everything in his game and he's feisty with the ginger hair, which is also good for a nine. And he can certainly marshal the trips. So, you know, looking for he's a real asset, I think, for he will be a real asset for Ulster going forward in the in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. I actually think the box kicking style and like those sort of proven kicks over the top and into the opposing 22 are, are very Pinar-esque in the style, the style that he kicks the ball as well as, as passing. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. You know, I, I just think that um, he's got he's got an all his all round games there, and it's actually probably in the last maybe six months he's really moved on at pace. Um, and obviously been in training with Ulster full time now, and been in the academy and moving through. And uh, I think it's really just brought his game on. Very young to be where he is, and as I say, I think he will be a massive asset to Ulster moving forward. So my standard question, of course, when somebody like this breaks in and has a, a big performance early in their Ulster career is, uh, of course, do they have Ireland potential, Jonathan? But obviously, in this case, it's probably a more obvious answer than than any that I've asked about before. Peter Lockhart asks, do you think Duke actually has the highest ceiling of anyone in in this Ulster squad? I would still say the highest ceiling in the squad is Balakun. Really? Higher than Duke. In the sense that I think we've seen more of Balakun. He's further down the track, but I think you could legitimately make the projection that it would be no surprise if Balakun played for the Lions in four years' time. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a massive stretch to say somebody that's played three times to project them as a lion, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I so it's not for not for want of trying on Nathan's part of how well he's played at all levels of rugby that we've seen him play at, but easier to predict that he'll become an Ireland international. Yeah, it like it could be a great battle if he comes through as we expect, and then obviously Craig Casey is young as well, mm-hmm. uh, has or and has already been captain, has established himself, I suppose, as the second choice at Munster behind Connor Murray, which is what Nathan's really coming into this season looking to do to establish himself as that primary backup. Because we shouldn't forget either, and this is something that I talked about. Um, with Dan McFarland afterwards like it would have been very easy to envisage a scenario where Duke wasn't involved this week I think it's great that he was because you want to see more of these guys but uh, and in that kind of environment in that kind of game but it would have been very easy to see a 23 where Shanahan was on the bench Gilroy started at fullback and neither Nathan Duke or Ethan McElroy were involved you know well the only thing I would say um that in Ireland, there are obviously four provinces with players uh, vying for that nine jersey. And uh, last Saturday, I was at the A game in Dublin and young Matthew Devine of Connacht was superb. Uh, he had a great game um, for the Westies. And they 
you know, he controlled everything and scored two tries. He had pace. He kicked. He passed well. So you know, there will be competition. Um, you know, in the years ahead, and that's always good. That's always good to have. But I don't see any reason why Nathan uh, couldn't achieve uh, the green jersey. No problem at all doing that. Yeah, and um, maybe even a red one. Who knows? We'll uh, but we'll not put too much pressure on him just yet. We do love to jump up and down after one uh, one really promising performance, especially from a young homegrown player. And in that spirit, there's obviously been loads of talk about John Cooney's contract situation and the fact that who knows he may move on at the end of the season already. Does this uh, soften that potential blow in any way? <laughs> I am aware of the ridiculousness of that question, by the way. And while we're on Kenny, what do we know about his injury? Yeah, the injury doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't sound at all like he's going to play this week, but it might not be as bad as fear. Because obviously, if somebody's carrying a hamstring injury in the game and then go off with what looks like a hamstring injury, there's always a concern that they've done damage. It's going to keep them out for even longer than if they had to just missed the original match, you know. But um doesn't sound like it's that bad. Does this soften the blow of Cooney leaving? Look, the fact of the matter is, I'm fully aware that it's a specialist position, but like the only people you should be worried about you having too many good players in one position is the third best player in the position. Like fans shouldn't be concerned about having too many good players. Like Leinster aren't sat there being like, we've got too many international tight heads. Don't know what we're going to do. Well, the answer is obviously switch one of them to loose head. But regardless of that, like, this idea that some coaches are like, oh, you know, there's an embarrassment of riches or whatever. And I understand that you're just trying to move the conversation along, Gareth. I'm not having a go at you, but like <laughs> this idea that a team in the pro sport or in the URC and in Europe can have too many players is a fallacy because you look at the very best teams and they've got not just like an international or probably a former international and a promising player, they've got like two internationals in almost every position. Yeah, but if six months ago you'd said John Cooney's leaving, it would have been like, oh, no, this is a disaster. What are we going to do? Now you think John Cooney's leaving. Well, Nathan Doak could be class for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, I know I know what you mean. And like succession planning, <laughs> which was that ever popular phrase. Yeah, I guess. But, you know, you can have Marcel Katsia and Nick Timoney, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other, you know. Just trying to bring some positivity, you know. So <laughs> that's, about, uh, that's about all I have to say. And Nathan Doak for now, anything else to add, John? Uh, nope. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> we can draw a line under the Nathan Doak chat for now. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more of it in uh, the weeks and months that are ahead, given uh, just how promising he looks and... Uh, Hopefully, we'll see plenty more of them. So, on to the Glasgow game in particular itself. Um, I suppose we should uh, we should discuss that. Obviously, Ulster got over the line just about holding out Glasgow in the, the final throws of the game. Mel McCackney wants to know, was this a game that Glasgow lost rather than that Ulster won? I don't think so. I think the one thing I would say about last Friday night was the crowd. How good it was to hear that crowd back and to help the Ulster team get over that line. Uh, whenever those big defensive sets were going in that last 10, 15 minutes, every time Ulster achieved a game, the crowd was fantastic. They got behind the players. You could see them, it actually lifted the team. That's what Ulster have missed, uh, especially at home, over the last uh, 15, 18 months. And I think that's going to be a big plus for them moving forward. Get that support back, get that support behind them. And it, it does matter. 
It really does. And I think that was brilliant to see that on Friday night. To say that Glasgow lost the game, a game they should have won, I don't think so. I think Ulster did enough. I think Dan will probably be very disappointed with the fact they kept they kept getting back into the game when Ulster should have closed it, closed it out. You know, a win's a win. Five points are in the bag. Move on. Yeah, yeah, job done. First game of the season, five points. Probably all we can ask for. Somebody did sort of, as Niall McDonald made that point in the questions. He asked, are people reading too much in the, the first game of the season? And just looking through a variety of the questions we've got in, it does seem, Jonathan, that a lot of people are sort of, don't really know what to what to think after that game. It was uh, a bit of a mixed bag. People are now wondering, are we reading too much into it? Other people, Philip Totten wants to know, is it a worry that Ulster's habit from uh, a few years ago of having purple patches in matches followed by long periods of being second best was back on show again on Friday night? Uh, he says, can we expect him to dominate? For, we can't expect him to dominate for the full 80, but they do seem to drop off more than other teams. So, yeah, just seems to be a little bit of a, a mixed bag reaction. They did bug that trend to a certain degree because when they had those problems with purple patches, it was that they kept having really bad third quarters and the third quarter was probably their best here because they really came out and won the game after halftime. But, yeah, yeah inter- I think it will be a concern of Dan McFarland's and he's spoken about it before. I've asked him about it before. That search for an 80-minute performance. And it's you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna get it against the best teams. But the key is when you get to a point where you're 13 points up that you don't allow the other team to get back into it. And like look, Glasgow played well, like their loose forwards and their second row were two really, really strong units for them. They were a side that I suppose did finish the Rainbow Cup well, regardless of how much stock you put in the Rainbow Cup. But but like Glasgow showed up and played well. And if you take the penalty try incident out of it, like Ulster obviously felt that that shouldn't have been a penalty try. And if you take that incident out of it, then Ulster won by 13 points. Like I predicted a 30 to 15 score. And if you take out the penalty try, like you're not far off that, you know? So I don't think it was as far from... I admire that attempt to say that you predicted it correctly when you actually didn't, but go on ahead. If you take out the referee decision, I was fair, <laughs> a lot closer than I normally am to the winning margin, I'll put it that way. Uh, <laughs> that for some reason, the newspaper insists that I make every week. <laughs> I, I completely understand the, like, the question because Glasgow probably come away, come away thinking that they should have won the game. I certainly came away thinking they should have won the game given their post-match injuries but like there's so many different parts to winning a rugby game and defence is one of them I think it's equally fair to say that Ulster won the game with their defence in the last 10 minutes a few dodgy exits made it hard enough for them because they had to keep defending you know but like and that was when the crowd really came alive as well but I think that that was the period where Ulster won the game decisively but I don't think that Glasgow lost it there yeah no that's fair enough John uh, Stephen McCormick was delighted to get back as you have both already said with a decent crowd although he says that he came away just a little bit disappointed at the standard of Ulster's rugby and he asked does this game reflect the reality of Ulster's relative competitiveness I I don't think so I think that um, you know you play what's in front of you on each occasion when you go out and I think that Ulster last week I felt did more than enough to win the game and we scored five tries. Okay, one of them was a penalty try, but we scored five tries. Um, so from that point of view, I would say that was a successful 
outing. The style of play, um, the excitement of play mightn't have been probably what maybe fans were hoping for. There'll be some fans there will just be delighted to get the win. Other f- fans who want to see running attractive rugby all the, all the time will be really disappointed. But this is what the modern game is like now. It's a game of chess, really. It's a strategy between two defences and two attacks. And um, the amount of work and energy that goes in midweek to try to work out what the opposition are going to do and how to counter that and how we're going to try to get better, uh, get past them. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, a lot of work's put in to try to negate each other at the weekends. Mm. So here comes 12's rugby. <laughs> I never got discussing it last week. Oh, um, if you want entertainment, that's what you're going to have to look at or else the world rugby have to change the laws of the game. Because unfortunately, you know, defense, big defensive sets are always going to make a game less entertaining and more of a dogfight. But that's what we're, that's what rugby is like today. That's what the professional game is like today. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're going to need to change the laws up. That's one thing that world rugby can do, or look at changing the format of the game. Uh, or introduce another format of the game for those who just want pure entertainment. Well, look, you've brought us to it now, John. Let's just do a wee aside here for a couple of minutes because after you left last time when Zoom kicked you out, Jonathan said, I'm going to paraphrase, but that this World world 12 is a load of nonsense. John, it's time for you now to have your reply. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, look, my, my point simply is this. Rugby, you know, when we turned professional as a sport in 95, uh, the game brought with it a lot of pressures and a lot of um, uh, demands for win and for for winning and for success, and that puts a lot of pressures on coaches to to develop strategies. And the big thing that happened in rugby was the strength and conditioning was one thing where players became real, real athletes. You've got two sets of athletes banging into each other at 100 miles an hour, and and while there's big impacts and everything now. It is not maybe as attractive as an entertainment spectacle as it was 15, 20 years ago. So what do you do? You either look at changing the laws. Like One thing I'd love to see, or two things I'd love to see, the ball been put into the scrum straight down the middle and hookers hooking the ball properly. Bring a contest back into the scrum. At the minute, the, the ball's been put into the back row. I, I counted four or five times last Friday night. The referee, Ben White, Ben Whitehouse, never even blew it once. And maybe that's a directive from the um, International Rugby Board that they don't want any of that. They just want the game to be restarted as fast as possible mm-hmm. and take the scrummaging out of the game. But hooking used to be an art, an art form. Players had to hook the ball. Scrum was a scrum. It's no longer. It's not even a contest any, anymore. Um, and then the other thing, you know, from a forward point of view, one of the great skills was a rolling mall. And if you're wanting to try to, make space and create room and how to bring people into a situation is get them into a mall. You're going to have to, to, to defend a rolling mall. You need to put players in. And by putting players in, you're creating space on the pitch. You get in green grass around the malls and out wide. And that's one way to suck people in. And the rolling mall was a great art form for a forward. And uh, it allowed the ball to be brought in and then worked through the hands and then the ball was whipped out quickly when scrum half wanted it and moved across the pitch to where there is obviously going to be green grass and space. You know, two things that could improve the game at the minute. Um, Other than that, you have to take three players off the pitch 
to make, make it a bit more interesting, hence 12s. That's what they're talking it's about. It's not the concept of losing players that I disagree with. Like, that's been talked, I think people have talked about that before. It's been talked about in terms of basketball as well. If the pitches and the courts are the same size, but people are getting bigger, then obviously there's less space. I just don't like one, the idea of being players being done in like a draft or a, whatever it is, an, an auction thing, and then people being expected to support these teams and the fact that there's no room for all the rugby in the calendar at the minute. It's more the tournaments than the actual thought process behind the entertainment value of the games. And I also just don't like the idea of everyone being told that things that are shorter are better. So this idea of things being half an hour because they think that mm. modern people can't concentrate for 80 minutes is another bugbear of mine. Yeah, well, the, the I'd say, Johnny, the one thing that probably needs to come out of the calendar now the summer internationals. Yeah. What's the point of them? Because all they do, it's like a B international series. To get rid of them and play the, the 12s in the summer period. Especially in South Africa, because it's just not going to work. Like, yeah. I was actually, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, you know, the, this idea of um, South Africa wanting to come in the Six Nations, but not, or wanting to stay in the rugby championship. It's like, well, as the job of a South African rugby player would then be to play from February up until November for South Africa. Yeah, it doesn't work. Okay, well, that was a, a good little aside. Enjoyed that. If anybody does have any thoughts on the World 12s, uh, do let us know on social media. Back to Ulster. And, and, and rolling malls. And rolling malls. <laughs> you agree with yes. me, get the rolling malls and straight scrummaging or, or straight throw our put-ins in the scrum. This is great. We've just put the whole sport bang the rights now. <laughs> While we're on forwards, a player that I know you do enjoy, John, Bradley Roberts. You had said last week when you were taking money off me on the golf course that you did want to see him starting. He did start. He got a try. Yes, um, I think he uh, he went well. He's an exciting package, uh, Bradley. I really enjoyed watching him last week. Again, it's one of these one of these things. You know, it's a, it's one of those special things in the sport where a guy comes from South Africa over to Northern Ireland to play a bit of. Uh, club rugby and he gets picked up on the in the pro circuit and has got a contract out of it which is a great story in itself uh, and he's doing really well and fitting in well and uh, he's a very popular member of the squad uh, Johnny's performance um, vindicated the decision to uh, to start him and um, we're, we're probably going to see plenty of him I think yeah I think like um, I think he played well it was interesting to hear him talk yesterday just about the level of conditioning required to play um, professional rugby compared to all Ireland league rugby. Because uh, I think during the week we had talked about it maybe as an impact sub. Yeah. And, you know, he said the 40 minutes was by far the longest that he's played. And he was blowing a fair bit. So, he st- you know, he still has to work his way up to that 50-minute mark. But, you know, from where he's come from and from being knackered after his seven-minute cameo whenever he was first exposed to the... Uh, the pro game, he's coming on leaps and bounds. Obviously, like the there were line out issues for the side, but again, speaking to Dan afterwards, you know, he's um, those lads that he knows from his time in Scotland, be it with the national side or with with Glasgow, he rates them very, very highly as line out forwards, and they always suspected that they might have problems. They had a sort of plan B in the line out that they went to at half time that sort of shored things up for them a bit and gave them that foothold that they need to, needed to take control of the game after halftime but just I, I agree 100% with what John said like it's if you think about the story it's probably the best like narrative arc 
that there is in the Ulster squad, probably along with Robert Balakin. Like an awful lot of these guys are earmarked to be rugby professionals from very early on. You know, like we talked about Nathan Doak earlier. Like I remember watching Nathan Doak in a medallion game and being told that he was going to play for Ulster. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Bradley Roberts, you have somebody's making their first professional outing at the age of 25, having at one stage looked like he wasn't even going to be able to get back in as an Irish qualified player because of he'd gone home for too long during the, or told he had gone home too long during the pandemic. Like it's just, it's such an outlandish prospect that this guy has ended up playing for Ulster. And um, the way that you, I think you can see that in the way that he approaches playing, like the enthusiasm and the attitude that he brings into his performances really, I think just one vindicates the chances that he's taken. But I think you can also see that idea that this wasn't something that was laid out for him like this wasn't an inevitability that he was going to be at this level and probably makes him a, a fan favorite as well i think we all sort of uh, i don't know we feel like we identify with him a wee bit more feel like he's just sort of a normal guy who has somehow found his way in the ulster team and <laughs> we all just think that it that there goes me fair play to you love it i asked him about that yesterday like how aware he was of the idea of being a fan favorite when obviously like you're not interacting with fans in the same way because they're not there. And um, yeah, he said he wasn't too aware. He hadn't been too aware of it. So um, maybe now in the in the coming weeks and months when fans are back in the stadiums, they'll uh, can appreciate that a bit more as well. Yeah, that's a job for everybody in the, the stadium then to make sure make sure he knows it. Ulster's big name signing. We should discuss Mick Carney. It played very well, John. Excellent. He's. Uh... All the games so far this season, he's put in big shifts, and he certainly uh, came on on um, on Friday night and did the same again. Uh, carried the ball really well, and he, he drives through in contact, which is good. You know, he, he just doesn't take the impact; he just drives. The leg drives there all the time. Um, probably goes back to his coaching days and brought up in that Leinster system. Um, you know, they're well-drilled boys, and uh, you know you can see that. And he knows his game. He's a very intelligent player. Uh, knows how to, to to work the line out, and uh, I think it's been a great signing for Ulster. Very very promising early signs. There's a couple of really interesting points that we need to discuss. Then, first of all, we shall look at the James Hume try saving intervention that was uh, in the end earned a yellow card. Dan McFarland was asked about this by our very own Michael Sadler in the press conference after the game and gave a really interesting answer that if we try and sum it up ourselves, we'll not do it justice. So we'll just let you hear just how that exchange between Michael and, uh, and Dan McFarland went after the game, starting with Michael. And, and just one other thing from me in relation to obviously what happened to James in the yellow card. How do you approach that situation going forward as a coach? What can you tell your players to do if, if they're going to get a yellow card for doing uh, something, which he did? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to pass your question on directly to the referees. So, in actual fact, I might give them your number, Michael, okay, and you, you can have a conversation because that's, that's exactly it. What's he meant to do? You know, are we literally saying now that a player can dive short of the line? Okay, so he can land short of the line in the knowledge that he's allowed one big sort of bounce up and stretch. He's allowed one, but he can stop short of the line in the knowledge that nobody's allowed to touch him. You know, that's literally what that decision is saying. So if I think I might be tackled before the line, I just drop on the floor and then jump over the line afterwards because they can't touch me. Like, I don't know. 
know, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it, it seems it seems ludicrous to me. And obviously, if he if if, if James comes in, shoulder barges him or knees him or uh, whatever, but, but he totally didn't. He literally went for the ball and held it up over the line. But but there there we go. Like that, that it, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. But you know, I think I said it before. I don't, I don't think I've seen that penalised before. Yellow card and penalty try. Wow. What would you say about uh, about what happened with James Hume? Dan made his feelings on it very, very clear there after the game. It was good to see that the Grim Reaper was on point with that question. Well done. Um, You're going to have to edit this out or you'll never come back on again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, it was funny. I, I looked at it obviously in the big screen and I couldn't figure for the life of me why I got the yellow card. And I happened to be at Ballinahinch on the Saturday and there was referees, assessors there. And we the, obviously the question started about the game last night and uh, and the Hume incident came up and they were explaining, like, I mean, the, the, once James didn't let the player up on his feet, he it, it was an automatic yellow card. And because the player couldn't get his feet and ground the ball, it was a penalty try. So by the letter of the law, what the, the referees uh, did was correct. And, and that's the way they explained it. They weren't defending the referee. It was just as a matter of fact. That was the way it is. That's the law, how it stands. So Dan McFarland's yeah. question is, what does James Hume do in that situation? Because that's a problem. Um, because the player doesn't have to get his feet to score a try. So, like, it is just one of these... Like, it's it's a complete oddity. Like, a try is essentially inevitable. Like, unless... The only thing Hume can do at that point to the letter of the law is come through the gate and win a turnover, which there's absolutely no time to do. So it's like... It's just bizarre because basically the try was scored, or in the eyes of the law anyway, the try was basically scored before Hume did anything because it was nothing that Hume legally could have done to stop the try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His, his, his foot wasn't touched as well. It was just one of those decisions that went against Ulster and it, it nearly turned the game, unfortunately, because what you could deem as a, a great defensive play turned into you know a penalty try, seven points to, to, to Glasgow. Um, it was just one of those unfortunate things. It's, it's, it, the laws today, you know, if you had a magic wand and were able to wave it over some of the laws, that would be definitely one of them you'd change. And like I remember Sean Reedy got, got red carded. Uh, I think it was in Glasgow as well at, at, uh, at Scotston for tackling um, a player uh, whenever he was diving for the line. Sean Reedy was ta- went in to tackle him. And like he was, the guy was diving for the line and Sean hit him or tackled him round the neck or whatever but it was it, it, you know, how, how do you stop a player from scoring and it was in the act of scoring a try now he got red, I think he got red carded for it if I'm, if I'm not wrong I think that, like that's the thing the thing as well where it's like the, the confusing element of it I suppose for people is just what like what are you meant to do and that's what the, you know that's what Dan has said mm-hmm. and like I don't know I can see like I can see both sides of it, but for me, the more the, one of the more impressive things about the tackle from Pume was the fact that he didn't slide in with his knee and hit him with his knee, because you see that so often, and you can see how much it annoys players when it happens to them. If they're diving for the line, the try's already scored, and somebody slide, slides in late and basically just takes it as an opportunity for a free hit. Like It would have been really easy to see a scenario where James Hume slid in and ended up catching that winger in the face with his knee or something like that, just because of momentum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, like, to me anyway, it looks like Hume actually took all of this into account 
in such a short amount of time and slid in a way that meant his knees stopped. His body went forward onto the ball and took the ball into touch. Like if it had been legal to the letter of the law, to enact it in that way was was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Like if we just pretend it was legal, it was unbelievable. An unbelievable yeah. piece of defending. Uh, but there you are, the yellow card and the penalty try. So uh, actually, not that unbelievable according to the rules of the game. So uh, the I other, uh, like Michael had a call from Greg Garner over the weekend just to discuss this. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you imagine the scenario of going back into the changing room after the game and James had let the guy pick the ball up and dot it down for a try? Watching Dan McFarland would say to him, you know. Just like he was like being competitive, that. and that was—he wasn't being dirty. It was just pure competitiveness yeah, to exactly. stop the try from being scored. That's why I think some of the times that the laws, are, you know, it's just so unfair. Yeah, and, so, and that's rugby. Well, we'll leave uh, Michael to uh, sort that one out. The the other interesting point comes from Dono's question. He says Dan McFarland is usually so honest and upfront, but. Did we see him take a leaf out of the GAA manager's handbook and declare uh, Lowry and Allison as injured before going on to play them? Is this gamesmanship of sort of thing that we might expect more of from now on? Or did they both just recover very quickly? I should say that I'm not... There's definitely no GAA manager's handbook that encourages managers to do this type of thing. Alex Ferguson's handbook uh, might, uh, if he he had one, uh, on tactic of the former Manchester United manager as well. John, you're behind behind the scenes at training and everything. How many trade secrets are you going to give away here? Were Lowry and Alisson actually injured uh, or were there never any injuries at all? Herring and Addison, by the way. Oh, sorry. No, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> oh, and is that it? Yeah. <laughs> I expect you to say. As a, as a fully paid out member of the National Union of Journalists, I personally would really prefer it if he didn't just say the players were injured and then they mysteriously appear on the team sheet. That, that would be great for me. But... <laughs> I I almost feel like the the weekly donor is tailored to me. Like I could have asked that question myself. It feels like a plant, but it's not. Um, just after me being accused of trying to get rid of him last week, when all I was doing was uh, joking about Gareth's fickle nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really interesting point. Let's see what happens over the course of the season if we have any more of these mysterious injuries that. Uh, Turns out the players actually do go on to play in the game. And you know what? I hope you it do. Back have the compliment. Like, I, yeah, I hope it happens every other week. I love it. I love this type of thing. I hope Dan was just making them up. I don't think he was, but I sort of hope he was. The idea that uh, Dan McFarden thinks that Danny Wilson is uh, paying attention to the Belfast Telegraph is uh, <laughs> it's a compliment in one way. You know? <laughs> that, is... sorry, that, that would assume that it was to gain a competitive advantage rather than just make me look silly, which it would <laughs> <could> be. <laughs> And to be fair, either of those objectives of Dan's, I fully support, uh, wholeheartedly support. So, or the most likely option, I suppose, is that the boys just recovered faster than he expected. But, uh, but that's boring, isn't it? That is the boring. Exactly. exactly. That's that's not as not strong podcasting. And I love how John's just letting the mystery linger there. <laughs> it's more exciting, brilliant. So, Mark Murhead asks, then, what do you make of the? Ultimate Rugby Championship package and broadcasting after the first round. My favourite bit was when we were watching some nonsense advert at halftime. He says, 
And on behalf of the company whose advert that was, they would say that their business is absolutely not nonsense whatsoever, <laughs> which ended abruptly, bringing us back two minutes late into the second half. Not ideal that from Premier Sports, but at the same time, it doesn't happen. Every, it doesn't happen every time. What do we make of the the current televisual package? It's the first game of the season for everybody, you know, uh, broadcasters included. And you have to cut some slack. Like anyone who spent the weekend watching the Ryder Cup, like if you uh, only missed a minute and a half of some live action to watch adverts, then uh, that's a win, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think I actually think it's a really important question because the idea about the package and how the league is presented is the real key thing to the South Africans coming in. And like broadcasting is part of that. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Like a slick broadcasting package is part of how a league is presented to the wider world, if not the uh, ticket going or ticket buying match going public. And I think it's interesting, but it's something that I'd really like to know more what people that are younger than me think about it. Because Obviously, like we've read a lot about like the Rock Nation stuff. There's so much talk about social media and the way the leagues post on social media. But like, I'm probably not the target market for like Instagram or Twitter campaigns saying how great everything is. But like, it would be interesting to me me to know how other people view the package. Like, what any league wants to do is attract young fans, and like you read stories about how like american sports leagues you know um give away textbooks or used to give away textbooks and things like that so they they were basically not on the curriculum as it were but they were in these textbooks to try and get in the minds of young people and have it as this you know this is a sport that you want to watch but i think just everybody knows that the league needs more eyeballs on it for me the main thing about that, the main thing about the package is ensuring that the best players are playing more regularly. And I think that was probably the more encouraging aspect of week one than anything else about how the league was presented. Like the idea that there's going to be more games played outside of international windows. So you're going to see more international players playing, not unfortunately for the South African sides, but that's the way the calendar is at the minute. Mm. And that to me is a huge part of this reason why this idea of the package being weaker than England or weaker than France is, is because we don't see the good players enough. And I think that's the most important aspect of improving the overall impression as much as people don't want to be missing a minute and a half of the second half. Just very quickly, JW wants to know any expected return dates for Ian Madigan and Jordy Murphy. Do we know anything? Not nope. too bad. Um, Jordy had a problem with his foot that was bothering at the end of last season. Sort of bothered him through the summer. But whenever he was talking to us a few, well, two weeks ago, he said he'd sort of turn the corner with it and was hoping it wouldn't be too long. So, Okay. Perhaps a promising development that then we'll, we'll keep an eye on that as well. Speaking of development, a great segue. This is the development team fixtures have been taking place, John, and you have been watching their three games against the other provinces. People are always dying to know about these games and about who's impressing them, about who looks like they could perhaps make the step up at some stage. Who has, has caught your eye out of those games? Well, the first game was against uh, Leinster, uh, and Nathan Took obviously played in that game. So uh, he obviously caught the eye of uh, the senior management. 
Uh, and all these games took place at the IRFU High Performance Centre in Dublin. So, you know, there were back-to-back games. Uh, one was start, kicked off at 12, and then the next one kicked off at 4 o'clock. Mm. Uh, and that's what happened over the last three weeks. And so... I would say a game against uh, Leinster was a great result for Ulster. Um, you know, to, to, to beat Leinster at any level is a good result and certainly give them a good perk up. They then went to play Munster and it was a great game of rugby, to be fair. Uh, and Ulster played played well throughout the game. Munster also played well, very attractive rugby. Uh, boys wanting, willing to move the ball into space and things. So, I, the boys that caught my eye were Harry Sheridan, who is second row and was the captain. Uh, he led from the front and was very, very competent. Um, Shea O'Brien at fullback, he's a club player with Armagh, a City yeah. Armagh Rugby Club, and he impressed. Uh, Lewis Finlay at scrum half. And then a, a couple of boys that came off the bench against uh, Munster were a guy called James McNabney. Uh, as a Balamina guy and he was impressive uh, big strong runner and Scott Wilson at prop um, again uh, he I believe was a centre who they've converted into number 8 and then converted into tight head prop but uh, he's got pace and he's got they scored a great try that brought Ulster back into the game and they lost the match by a point uh, 25-24 I believe um, then on Saturday or sorry last Friday uh, Ulster went back down to play Connacht and that game was interesting uh, Harry Sheridan again uh, caught the eye uh, Connor McKee played at scrum half uh, a good game Shea Bryan again caught the eye Jude Puffleswaite um, played and that was the, really the first time that, that Jude got a, a real run and I thought he had a good game but the star of the show on Friday was Zach Ward Andy Ward's son um, and Zach had a big impact in the second half and he came on. He was heavily involved in the, um, the Shea O'Brien try. Um, it was created uh, a great run in the midfield. Um, James, young James Humphreys. Uh, it was like the Humphreys-Ward combination of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, putting a, a young Zach Ward into space. And he has great pace, uh, almost made the line and the quick ball fired to the left, found um, little uh, Harry or Shea O'Brien, who went over for the score. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the very death, Zach Ward himself scored uh, a great individual try. A break, he broke free uh, on the Ulster 10-metre line and literally beat six players on his way to the corner flag mm-hmm. uh, and finished it off. Uh, and James Humphreys converted from the touchline. So, uh, you know, Ulster didn't... They had a bad start in, against Connacht and came back uh, and fought hard to come back um, and lost the game 22-19. But I would say that, uh, you know, the boys down in um, Gavin Hogg and, and Willie Falloon will be delighted with the progress that they've made thus far. Um, they have a very competitive young side, and there are a number of young players in that system that will definitely come through in the pro game. Mm-hmm. And just to, to preempt the inevitable listener question that they love to ask, if you were to pinpoint one or two of those many names that you, you have listed off there as being the next ones to make the, the step up, who do you think would be, be nearest ready? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot here. Okay, absolutely. Um, Harry Sheridan would be one yeah. that has a, constantly over the three games, Harry, Harry has impressed. Jude Poffelswaite was also I was impressed with him. 
And obviously, Zach Ward would be one that, uh, for me, after his performance in the first game when he came off the, uh, sorry, the second game when he came off the bench and he came off a bench again, um, I think he he uh, is one that could possibly either go into the seven system or move into the into the pro ranks. Yeah, because he is one we haven't spoke about before. Like we have spoken in the podcast, I'm sure about Harry Sheridan and certainly about Jude Postlethwaite before. But definitely, I don't think, to my knowledge, have mentioned Zach Zach Ward at all. So uh, perhaps he's a new name then that we we will have to discuss. Perhaps stepping up. He was like he was in England for a while, and then he's obviously come back and even playing for Hinch. As far as I'm aware, anyway, he came back into the setup this summer, having been out of it. That's why we haven't discussed him before then. <laughs> that like a lot of sense. It, would, it would be great if he did come to you, obviously, because it's a class story. Yeah, absolutely. There was, of course, an Ireland team in action over the weekend, Jonathan. The women we did discuss last week or the week before that their World Cup hopes were very much in the balance after that uh, that big disappointment against Spain. And now it has turned out it was uh, a fatal blow to their hopes of making it to the World Cup. Yeah, and it's obviously massively disappointing, primarily for the players. And obviously, I think you can see how much... It hurts them not to be going to the World Cup at the end of the game. It was actually fairly tough to watch, to be honest. Like the nature of it, the nature of losing a game like that, like it's the sort of sucker punch that probably Irish rugby hasn't had since like the All Blacks in 2013. Like that level of just looking at something, looking at the clock and being like, did that actually just happen? Sort of thing. Uh, but for that, for that to happen to result in you not going to a World Cup. And a World Cup that, let's be honest, you should be going to. Like Ireland have beat Scotland so many times over the years. And to lose to them now is obviously just a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. And then like the end of any World Cup cycle, you just sort of assume that it's going to be the end of an era type thing. You know, you've already seen Claire Malloy retire. He's probably... Certainly one of, if not the best player that I've seen playing for Ireland. Mm. But then I think you feel bad, like you feel bad for the players as well from before. You know, you think back to that World Cup semi-final and just everything that went into that and then to not build on it to the point where only two World Cups later, to not be quali- like to not be qualifying, it really does just bring home something that I suppose after the Interpros was already abundantly clear that like there needs to be a root and branch review of things and it needs to be public. Yeah, to think there there could be a blessing in disguise in that respect, John, that this could force a some sort of major change that that may be required to to help improve on performances down the line and yeah, improve the, the provinces. Yeah, totally totally agree with Johnny. Uh, you know, first time in thirty years. Um, not at the World Cup, I think is um, a massive underachievement for them, especially with all the effort that has gone in behind the scenes and uh, all the hard work in the years uh, that have gone on before by, by the girls um, and achieving so much. I think there'll be a lot of gnashing of teeth, but it's a good time to reset, refocus and and then build for the years ahead. Now, I, I, I was fortunate enough to watch some of the rugby uh, in the Interpro Championship and certainly some of the standard of the rugby played by Munster in particular and some of the Munster girls was breathtaking 
and to see that not translated into the Irish team. I wondered who was playing for Ireland, you know, because the, the some of the Munster girls looked at every bit as good, if not better. Their ball handling skills were amazing. So somewhere down the line, there's hopefully hope for the future. And um, they'll have to rebuild now, obviously, and look at it and do their homework and find out what went wrong. Maybe the fact they didn't have enough warm-up games would be the first thing they would look at. Um, they went into the, that competition maybe a wee bit cold and flat. I think that's certainly part of it. Like they didn't, they didn't play enough. Like you can put these people in a bubble in Dublin and be going through training sessions, but like there's nothing outside of matches that can prepare you for matches. You know what I mean? Um, and then the other thing is the sevens thing. You know, an, an awful lot of this, if you want to chart as chart it as a trajectory, whenever the sevens element came into it and people started to feel like resources were being plugged into sevens instead of fifteens people being flitted in between one camp and the other, bouncing back in. I think this is maybe so drastic a thing that you can say that, you know, that's that's not worked and it's time to look at how we spread the resources between sevens and fifteens. So before we go, we should, of course, look ahead to the game this weekend. Uh, is of course against Zebra on Saturday afternoon. The Italian team were beaten by the Lions 38-26 in their opening game of this season last weekend. What do we expect from Ulster this weekend, Jonathan? Another bonus point win, as we were saying last weekend. The importance of bonus points, is that really just uh, the minimum requirement, even from a from a trip on the road? Yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see which... Um... I don't know why I keep saying everything's interesting today, but you just kind of have to go with it at this stage um, to see which zebra they get, whether they get the zebra of the first half of last week or whether they get the zebra of the second, because those looks like two completely different teams. It's one of those games uh, like where if I wasn't watching it for work, I would have turned it off at halftime. And then you're glad that you didn't because um, the second half comeback was so interesting. But look at it this way. If zebra put anything like what they put out in the first 40 of that game against the Lions, then Ulster should score plenty of tries if you're talking about bonus points. Well, fingers crossed. And from a team point of view, John, yeah. any changes in particular that you would uh, you would be looking to make if you were in Dal McFarland's shoes? Probably not, unless they're just enforced changes through injury. But I, I would say, you know, I totally agree with Johnny. You know, you just don't know what Zebra team will turn up on the day. Uh, all I would say is Parma is not the easiest place to go to for Ulster looking for, an, um, let's say, a win, an easy win. You never get that there. Uh, and sometimes Ulster has struggled to get a bonus point in Parma. I know they've, they've, they've obviously achieved it two or three times, but you know against Italian opposition, you nearly generally expect maybe to get a bonus point win. But the quality of the Italian game has improved somewhat over the last number of years and it's getting harder and harder and harder to do that. The only way to achieve it is to get off to a quick start, get get a couple of tries in the first 10, 15 minutes and, and shake them up a bit and then hopefully uh, settle into the game. Um, if you let Zebra get at you, you know, you can soon be chasing it. You know, that's the problem Ulster face. And obviously getting the bonus point in a way when it's very important for, for them at this stage, keep the momentum going. Yeah. There's a, a tough few games after this. Yeah. I mean, like, they're on a bit of a stinking run, obviously, as ever. Like, you know, they were the better of the Italian teams in the Pro 14 last year, um, winning those derbies, but they've not won many games since, possibly, if any, games since. 
had a bad Rainbow Cup, as Ulster will tell you can't happen to anyone. But um, they're one of the sides that are really going to benefit from playing less games during international windows because, you know, there's times when they're, if you get them in the Six Nations, then they're pulling up club players basically to play. So they should see a huge benefit. And like John says, you know, the improving standards are you're now seeing some of those under 20s guys come through and playing in the club sites. Some of the re- really, really good under 20s teams that Italy have had over the last couple of Six Nations. Like, and then a few more like senior heads as well. Just it's not that long since we were talking about Carlos Cana as like the next big thing in Italian rugby. Now it's almost like you know he's been supplanted by Garbisi, but he's still a quality player. He plays really, really flat to the line, real running threat. Like you have, you have to be, you have to be on it playing against him. Uh, Mbanda is a good player. Um, Lakata is a good player. Like, you know, they have, and then BG as well, obviously like they have a good core there that should be, should be strong. But then like, <laughs> like I say, like the, fr- the first half of that game on Friday was some of the stranger things at the breakdown that I've seen in a while. Like they just basically didn't contest it or put one guy half-heartedly in there. But basically it was two passes and the Lions were in on the edge every time. And then you saw when they actually started competing at the breakdown in the second half when they actually devoted numbers to the breakdown and just upped the uh just upped the intensity. Like they were a different team. And if they had have got if they had got over in the 70th, 69th, 70th minute of that game with them all or on an Mbanda break where he, he just got hauled down short. Like if either of those things go for them, then there's every chance that they would have won that game from 35 nil down at halftime. Which uh, would have been a, a different discussion altogether and made a few headlines, no doubt, just before we go, Jonathan, any changes that you would be anticipating in the Ulster team? Obviously with Balakun out, it's going to be interesting whether we see Addison come in at fullback, whether we possibly see... Gilroy come in because don't forget Gilroy played well during the during the preseason. So you might just see Gilroy come in on the wing, keep the back three as is. You could see Addison come in at fullback and McElroy shifted to the wing. Or, you know, there's a lot of different uh, different things you can do there in the back three. The rest of it I'd probably keep as is. Obviously, Cooney out. You would hope that Nathan Doak and Billy Burns were able to build up a bit of an understanding there. So like I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't succumb to any temptation to uh to rest Burns or anything like that because while Nathan Doak has obviously shown to be an old head on young shoulders like I think to have that presence of somebody that he's played with so recently yeah. um, would be good and other than, other than that like you can look at the front row like some of those guys that were playing their first you know their first outings Eric O'Sullivan do you think maybe Eric O'Sullivan comes in possibly quite possibly do you go Herring to start now that he's had his first game but um no, they're like they're all good. Uh, they're all good options to have, especially when you consider. Basically, if you get such good impact from your bench, mm. it's really, really helpful. We saw that on Friday. So to have guys who came off the bench, put their hand up, and be pushing for starts this week is uh, something that Dan McFarland will have wanted. Yeah. Well, one player, uh, Johnny, that we haven't really mentioned at all in the podcast, Trip McCluskey last week. He was brilliant. I thought he was. I thought he was also the best player, actually. You know, yeah. he, he was super and yet no one has talked about him. Mm-hmm. And then I just thought in that, when things were getting difficult for Ulster, when they were having that down period, I thought he became all the more prominent, both in terms of what he was doing defensively, but also in just taking responsibility and attack, taking the ball on. I think he really came into his own during that period when things were going away from Ulster. And that, 
to me is the sign of a player that's growing. Like, you know, you look at the age profile of those outside backs and Stu's not old, but at 29, he was older, you know, considerably older than everybody else in those outside backs. And I think it really, it really showed that he's just grown into that senior figure role, if you know what I mean. He's a KV now of Ulster rugby. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, this has been a great discussion, boys. Very enjoyable. But that is just about time up. So that will be us for this week. Many thanks uh, for joining us once again, John. Uh, it's good to have you back on. And we thank you, as always, Gareth. Thank, thank you. you very much. And thank you very much, Jonathan, for your time as as always. No worries. Thank you. Thank you very much as well, most of all, to all of our listeners for your questions and uh, and just for tuning in. That's us for this week. We'll be back next week. Oh, I forgot to talk about uh, Marcel Katia. First time ever. <laughs>